Let's pray. Oh God, if unfallen angels long to look into this story, how shall it be, how must it be for we who are fallen? For we, for us, who are the reason for this story in the first place. Dear God, tell us again. That old, old story, we humbly pray through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Once upon a time, sometime in the future, I hope to sit down face to face with Gabriel. And I would like to ask him, would he please share a first person account of salvation's grand narrative? Now, I know what he's going to do, just like he did with John. He's going to protest, I'm nobody. The, the, the star of the story, the hero is my commander, your king. And of course, I would agree and so will you agree. But dear, faithful and mighty Gabriel, you had a front row seat on the greatest story ever told. Surely you can tell us a story or two. And perhaps he will. From the beginning. And perhaps he will. Open your Bible with me, please, to when the story begins in our Bible. The book of beginnings, the very beginning, book of Genesis. Could it be that Gabriel is here in this story? Could it be that he is here? Let's find out. Genesis chapter 3. This is the last piece, by the way, in our little late spring, first of summer mini-series entitled The Gospel According to Gabriel. This is part four. This is the conclusion. Those of you who are watching on television, if you'd like to get all four parts to this or you would like the study guide for today's. It's not a fill-in-the-blank study guide. We have it printed in our worship bulletin, but you can get it. You see on the screen our website, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. You're looking for the Gospel according to Gabriel. This will be part four, the conclusion. Let's pick it up in uh, the, the, the end of Genesis chapter 3. By the way, you didn't bring a, a Bible. You need to track this narrative. This is a dramatic one. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. It'll be page 3. Shouldn't be hard to find. Page 3. I'm in the New International Version. Here we go. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and thus live forever. Verse 23. So the Lord God banished him, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which she had been taken. Verse 24, After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The human race has fallen. All two of them. And there's no way for you and I to comprehend. You and I who take up such comfortable existence in this sin-besotted planet. Our cavalier, oh well. Another said, oh well. There's no way for us to comprehend how utterly tragic that headline must, must have appeared in that Times Square-like marquee, LED marquee that God keeps outside His palace with headlines from across the universe running, scrolling in red. And then the stunning word... That the human race has just fallen. Lucifer has duped 
the brand new creation into joining his rebellion against the throne. There's no way for us to comprehend the sickening, gut-wrenching headline. In the classic Patriarchs and Prophets, heaven's shock over Adam and Eve's fall is captured. And I'll put the words on the screen for you. You see that? The fall of man filled all heaven with sorrow. The world that God had made was blighted with the curse of sin and inhabited now by beings doomed to misery and death. Angels ceased. Isn't that amazing? Angels ceased their songs of praise. No music. We're in mourning now. Nobody felt like going out to eat. No music. No partying. Nothing. Angels ceased their songs of praise. Throughout the heavenly courts, there was mourning for the ruin that sin had wrought. End quote. Let's go back to that story of the fall. It's just one page. Back to verse 8. Let's read the story of the fall again. Tragically, we know it too well. Genesis 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife, that would be Adam and Eve, after they had both partaken of the forbidden tree. Nothing poisonous about the tree. The tree was simply an act, a physical act that would confirm whether they were with God or Lucifer. They have cast their vote for Lucifer. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the, of the day. And they hid, their best friend, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But, verse 9, the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, the baleful fruit already of sin's harvest. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike the seed of the woman. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Eugene Peterson renders this line. I'm declaring war between you and the woman. The New Living Translation. From now on, you and the woman will be enemies. Thus the cosmic battle for the allegiance of this fallen planet commences. Scrolling headline on, on heaven's marquee now reads, human race joins rebellion, but creator pledges rescue. But how? How are you going to rescue? How can you save this doomed race? Gabriel, the angels, everybody's asking. They have not long to wait. Drop down to verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. When you think about it, garments of skin? Nobody in the universe has ever seen a creature not wearing its skin. Skin is not something you take off. Where'd you get these? Could it be that the Creator walked around the corner with those garments and his hands already crimson with blood? Verse 23 again, so the Lord banished the human race from the Garden of Eden 
to work the ground from which they had been taken. Verse 24, and after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. From whence cometh that warm but dead skin? They are about to find out. Now, here's the question. It's a fascinating one. Could Gabriel be right there in that story? Could Gabriel be there? Let me run by you as we explore the answer. Let me run by you the seven, the seven points of reference we've gleaned from this miniseries coming to an end today. Here are the seven. You remember these. I'll just flash them by you. Number one, Ezekiel 28. You remember from the miniseries, Lucifer, the highest created intelligence in the universe. Ezekiel 28 declares he stood in, on the very stones of fire in the literal physical presence of Almighty God, covering cherub. Until pride was found in his heart and he was cast out. That's piece number one. Piece number two, Exodus 25. You remember this one. God says, hey, Moses, I need you to make a likeness of my throne in heaven. I need that solid gold bar. That will be the mercy seat. And I want you to carve two covering cherubim out of gold. So there's not one covering cherubim. There are two. I want you to cover two. Carve two. And they will cover the throne. So now we know there are two. Lucifer was one. He fell. Peace number three. When Lucifer was expelled from heaven, forfeited his place as the highest of the angelic throng next to God himself. The cherub who replaces fallen Lucifer, we learned by his own mouth in Luke chapter 1 verse 19, as he appears to that elderly, petrified priest named Zechariah. Gabriel. I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. Only the covering cherub stands Beside the divine one. Gabriel obviously took Lucifer's place. Piece number four. This is the same Gabriel who brought to both Daniel and John the prophetic visions that became Daniel and Revelation. Piece number five. This is the same Gabriel who appears in Luke's gospel to Zechariah and then the teenage virgin Mary and then the startled shepherds and then the shocked women at the tomb. And his words always are the same. His opening words. Do not be afraid. Piece number six. This is the same Gabriel that Desire of Ages informs us was assigned the high critical task. Once the Messiah, the, the pre-incarnate Christ becomes human, Gabriel assigned the task. You will guard his life from birth through resurrection. Two angels. That's why in the Gospel narrative, the two angels keep showing up. There are plural angels in the wilderness temptation. There are two angels at the tomb. There are two angels when he ascends. Two angels. Gabriel is one of them. Gabriel, who shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane and cradles the, the bloody, sweated brow of his commander. That's Gabriel. And final piece, number seven. This is the same Gabriel who with his covering cherub companion is summoned by Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. Come with me. My friend Abraham needs a visit and we must go now. Three mantled strangers show up in that sultry afternoon outside of Abraham's tent. He invites them in. Entertaining angels unawares. All right? So, our friend Jenny Lancer, she said, Dwight, I got a gift for you from my mother, Evelyn Youngberg. She wants you to have this book. She sent it to me. She, after the series begins. So I get this book, fascinating book, Angels and the Unseen Conflict, written by husband and wife team Donald and Vesta Mansell. The book is essentially a collection of quotations written a century ago. 
But with some careful study and thorough research, they have uncovered some stirring portrayals of angels' involvement in this cosmic, this great war on this planet. And it was in reading their book, after the series began, that I came across this fascinating notion that Gabriel is right here at the gates of the garden. The cherubim. The two covering cherubim. Three quotations. I'll throw them on the screen for you very quickly here. This is from an old magazine named Signs of the Times. Still exists today. Let me put the words on the screen. God assembled the angelic host to take measures. Once they heard of Lucifer's plan now to bring the human, draw the human race, dupe it into joining him. God assembles the angelic host to avert the threatened evil. It was decided in heaven's council for angels to visit Eden and warn Adam that he was in danger from the foe. Accordingly, two angels sped on their way to visit our first parents. The holy pair received them, these two angels, joyfully expressing their gratitude to their Creator for surrounding them with such a profusion of His bounty. But we are on a mission to tell you a story. They tell the story. It's a perfect world, but they need guardians now because the world is about to be plunged at least for a few minutes into a crucial war. Hopefully they succeed and the war is over. Next quotation, put it on the screen for you. The angels who had been appointed to guard Adam, those would be those two, guard Adam and Eve in his Eden home before his transgression and expulsion from paradise, were now, after the fall, appointed to guard the gates of, of paradise and the way of the tree of life, lest he, they, should return and gain access to the tree of life and sin be immortalized. So the two guardian angels now become sentinels at the gate. One more quotation. At the cherubim guarded gate, which we just read in Genesis 3.24, those were cherubim there. At the cherubim guarded gate of paradise. Now read this. The divine glory, that would be the Shekinah. The divine glory was revealed. That is the, the Shekinah is the physical presence of Almighty God Himself. Wherever He is, there are two angels beside Him. Ah, hither came Adam and his sons and daughters to worship God. Here they renewed their, their vows of obedience to that law, the transgression of which had banished them from Eden. Who are these two cherubim? Who are they? Could they be the covering cherubim standing beside the Shekinah glory? And if they are, we know the name of one of them. Gabriel. Mansell suggests that. I concur. The gospel according to Gabriel, who from the very beginning, can you believe that? From the very beginning, as it turns out, would have to learn the good news of the everlasting gospel the way all created intelligences learn it today. You have to hear it one story at a time. They didn't go to some library and say, pull out the, pull out the videos of the future. There is no future. They have to learn the good news one story at a time, which means Gabriel, who's standing there beside the Shekinah glory, witnesses Adam and Eve bringing that first innocent, woolly creature. And when the man reaches out with that implement to slice the throat of this lamb, Gabriel stares. Nobody in the universe has witnessed what they're about to witness. Adam and Eve in shame, gaze at the bleeding form of this lamb. What's going to happen to it now? Gabriel, Adam, and Eve meet death 
at the same time. Warm, but not breathing. Dead. When Adam picks up that carcass and puts it on a pile of rocks called an altar, and the Shekinah glory right there at the gate sends that fire out and consumes the sacrifice, then in the minds of angels and human beings begins to dawn the truth that this rebellion will cost the God and ruler of the universe immensely if He one day is to become that Lamb. You know what? I've got to tell you this. I suppose I would think twice, three times, four times, five times before committing what I already know to be a sin. I suppose I would think multiple times were I to bring an innocent creature and sacrifice it myself. I mean, how easily we sue for peace with Lucifer. How easily we call for a truce. I'll join you. I suppose I would think twice. We forget, don't we, that Gabriel and the angels learn the plan of salvation the same way we do one story at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no playbook. God has no playbook. The angels have no playbook. The earth has no playbook. You just have to... It's one story at a time. Cain, Abel, Noah, the antediluvians, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses, David, Jeremiah. One story at a time. Gabriel and the angels watch the plan of salvation, the great narrative unfold. One story at a time. Gabriel and the angels themselves are immersed. How many of those stories really have Gabriel's... Fingerprints all over it. I have no idea. One story at a time. Until the day came. In this desperate bid to save. Can you believe this? Desperate bid to save even a a tiny remnant. That's all they have left. Desperate bid. In the face of the wreaking havoc of Satan against the kingdom. Until that day came. When God Himself became flesh. Here's how I imagine it. When that day came and Bethlehem's babe is born, all of heaven, all of heaven quietly stood to its feet. And for the next three and a half decades held their collective breath. Nobody sat down. Nobody went on vacation. Everybody focused on the God-made flesh watching story after story. No wonder... Calvary, the greatest story of all, is the, is the angel story as well. Were they there at the cross that, that awful Good Friday? Yep, let me put the words on the screen for you. Desire of ages, all of them, they were there. Desire of ages, with amazement, angels witnessed the Savior's despairing agony. The hosts of heaven veiled their faces from the fearful sight. Inanimate nature expressed sympathy with its insulted and dying author. The creator of the universe is dying on that cross. This cross. God and His holy angels were beside the cross. Where do you think they'd be? Where else would they be? The Father, Gabriel, all the hosts of heaven congregated around Calvary's shaley summit. 
the darling of heaven. I like that song that we sing in second service. The darling of heaven, as the darling of heaven expires. They're there, unseen watchers, gathered in mute horror as the mob hurls epithets and spittle and obscene gestures at the one who created them. And Jesus, who is certain that heaven and earth all have forsaken him, Jesus just hangs there, eyes mournful and tear-brimmed. Parched and cracked lips, panting for every breath he suffers in silence while his creation curses his name. This is the one, by the way, the one on the center cross could have nuked the entire city of Jerusalem. By the way, could have nuked the entire planet, come down from that cross and said, I've had it. Forget it. It's not worth it. Blood-lashed Savior dies, expires. Last week, my friend Ron Clear sent me a quotation I'd never read before. It's printed on page three of our communion bulletin, so you get to have it. Those of you watching, you go to the website. All the quotations are there. Let me put it on the screen for you. From that little magazine, Signs of the Times, a century ago. Put the words there. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ. Now, notice this. Isn't this amazing? For even they, the angels, are not secure today, present tense, are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. Millennia later, angels still look back to the cross. They're not secure except by looking, Gabriel, brooding on the sufferings of the Son of God. Quotation goes on. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded, present tense, they're guarded today from apostasy. Isn't that amazing? They're kept. They're held in check today. Why? Because they remember the story. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Now, I like this logic. Angelic perfection had failed in in heaven. Heaven was perfect. Satan, Lucifer, perfect. It failed. But in the very next breath, human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. Adam and Eve, perfect. But they chose to fall. Therefore, this line, look at that. All who wish for security in heaven or earth must look present tense. Angels must look present tense. Humans must look present tense. All who long for the security of safety must look to the cross. You never graduate from Calvary. You are never under the crimson call of that divine sacrifice. Ever, ever, ever. You want to stay secure? Go to the cross. Something happens when we do that simple little Bible plea. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Something happens to us when we behold Him there. Must be why Jesus, wanting to make sure we had a full sensory participation in Calvary's 2,000 now year old story, must be why Jesus put in our hands white towel, warm bread, cup of juice. And he said, You take these three and you touch the towel when you eat the bread, when you drink the cup. It will transport you back 2,000 years to my sacrifice. You're only secure here. All who would be safe 
Let's look to the sufferings of the Son of God. Quotation ends. I put the words in the screen again. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard. I love that. Eternal safeguard against defection in unfallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed. That would be you and me by the blood of the Lamb. Our only hope is perfect trust in the blood of Him who can save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. And then this sentence, the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary is our only hope and it will be our theme in the world to come. Our only hope. And for the rest of eternity, it will be our theme. Desire of Ages says it's the science and song forever and ever. Amen. You'll never graduate from studying this. Oh, here's the writer now. Oh, we do not comprehend the value of the atonement. If we did, Dwight, we would talk more about it. Why don't you talk more about it? Why, do I hear, why don't I hear more from you? Oh, We do not comprehend the value of the atonement. If we did, we would talk more about it. The gift of God and His beloved Son was the expression of an incomprehensible love. End quote. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, we have gathered today to brood upon the incomprehensible. To brood upon the incomprehensible love of God. And now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.